I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, we devote 50 years of our life to it, yet it might just be getting us down. We'll be examining the world of work and the workplace and hearing how our behaviour and our buildings can change to make us healthier. And in the news, how gut bacteria can control our response to cancer treatment, plus how a rare opportunity allowed scientists to get inside the human mind. Hello, I'm Chris Smith, she is Georgia Mills, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Soberingly, one in every three of you listening to this programme will develop cancer at some point in your life. And the big news this week is that whether a cancer victim responds to certain treatments or not might be dictated by the bacteria they carry in their intestines. That's according to a new study from researchers at the University of Texas. Jennifer Wargo and Deepak Gopalakrishnan looked at more than 100 patients with the skin cancer melanoma. Those that responded best to a therapy designed to make the immune system attack tumours had a very different spectrum of gut microbes compared with patients who responded less well. And the same bacteria produced similar outcomes in mice with tumours as well. We wanted to focus on an area that there's a growing interest in, and that's the microbiome. Uh, We know that in our bodies, we have trillions of bacteria. They actually outnumber our own normal cells by up to 10 to 1. And uh, what it's becoming quite apparent that these bacteria actually can influence how our body functions, not only from a digestion standpoint, but they can actually influence our own immune system. And so we studied a large group of patients with metastatic cancer, cancer that had spread throughout the body, in this case, uh, metastatic melanoma, which again is a, a form of skin cancer. So Deepak, what did you actually do? How did you do the experiments? Right. We started uh, enrolling patients in our protocol about two, two and a half years ago. Before they started therapy, we sought to collect an oral and a gut microbiome sample from them in order to identify what bacteria are present and the diversity of the uh, communities as well as the component bacteria within each of these communities. We also looked at the response of these patients uh, in order to correlate whatever microbiome characteristics we had identified with response. Right, so you've got a group of patients. They're united by having malignant melanoma, a kind of skin cancer that's spread around their body, and they're receiving immunotherapy, which encourages the immune system to hit their cancer. And you're saying, in these people who responded to this, are there any differences in the bugs that they have in them compared to people who do less well? That's correct. What did you find? We didn't see any substantial difference when we looked at the bacteria in the mouths of these patients. But we did find night and day differences in the gut microbiome of these patients. Uh, You know, with patients who responded to the immunotherapy having a higher diversity of bacteria within their gut and also uh, different bacteria, you know, specifically more bacteria in something called the ruminococcus group. And why do you think, Deepak, that the difference in the bugs makes a difference to the response to therapy? What do you think is going on? That's a very fascinating question. And we are trying to also better understand the 
mechanism that is driving these responses so one of the primary reasons is that the 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 gut is a seat of high immune activity within the body and there is a uh, plenty of scope for interaction between the microorganisms that inhabit the gut and the immune system so there is a lot of interfacing between these two processes that takes place at the gut we also took our study into mice and what we did was we took we took germ free mice so these did not have any microbiota in their intestine and we transplanted them with a stool from either a or a patient who responded very well on therapy versus a patient who did not respond at all and there we saw that mice that received responder stool they grew much smaller tumors and did much better on therapy compared to mice that received non-responder stool would you speculate then that in a person with melanoma if they have a certain spectrum of bacteria living in their intestine these are in some way manipulating the immune system and putting it into a state that determines how well it will attack a tumor if given the chance that's absolutely what we think and you know i think you know in our body you know certainly the highest density of bacteria are within our gut you know and they're constantly interacting with the immune cells that are also in our gut and surrounding our gut and so it's essentially shaping an immune response you know in normal healthy people as well as in patients with cancer so do you think that there might even be grounds in the future for for carrying out a selective transfer of of fecal bacteria into cancer victims in order to better stimulate their immune responses Absolutely. You know, and this approach is already being used for non-cancer states like Clostridium difficile colitis or for infections of the colon and also for inflammatory bowel disease where, you know, you can actually do as you say a transfusion or a fecal transplant. Um certainly, you know, I think the concept for treating patients with cancer using fecal transplant and other strategies to change the microbiome is very real. In fact, we're planning a study to do just that to try and change the microbiome in hopes to improve responses to immunotherapy. It's fascinating, isn't it? And we'll certainly keep an ear to the ground on that one to see how it goes. Jennifer Wargo there and before her Deepak Gopalakrishnan and they were talking to me about the study they have just published in the journal Science. 66 million years ago a meteor collided with the earth and the aftermath was catastrophic. For a start, it wiped out the dinosaurs. Now, thanks to a new model of the event, scientists have a much clearer idea of how the climate conditions changed afterwards. Izzy Clark heard what happened from the author of the study, Joanna Morgan. When it hit the earth's surface, it pushed it down about 30 kilometers, making this enormous hole that was 100 kilometers wide and 30 kilometers deep. and that took only about a minute and then it took about another 9 minutes to collapse into its current crater that's 200 kilometers wide and a kilometer deep it hit in mexico it hit um what's currently the yucatan peninsula it was a particularly bad place at that location there was the sediments that are full of carbon and sulfur and those were ejected into our earth's atmosphere and that's what caused sort of some of the rapid climate change immediately after impact Um, and what effect did that have at the time? Sulfur is quite bad for us. Sulfur forms an aerosol, and that reflects sunlight. Uh, so what we can see when we use um, what are called global climate models is that sulfur injection into the atmosphere led to global cooling of more than twenty-five degrees centigrade for about you know a year. And actually, we had sub-freezing temperatures for for three to sixteen years after this impact. 
this happened 66 million years ago. So how on earth are you able to work all of this out? In terms of the climatic gases, we can run numerical simulations. When the asteroid hits, uh, we can simulate that and the passage of a shock wave travelling through the rocks leads to this degassing. So that's how we make our calculations of the sulphur. And then sort of what happens immediately afterwards, uh, we can look at what's called the fossil records, so the sediments that filled the crater after impact. We can look at the little tiny fossils and the, and the chemistry of those layers to tell us about things like temperatures, post-impact, and, and how life came back to the impact site. So what effect did this have on the animals and plants on the planet? Uh, so we had um, both global cooling and, and global blackout of light for at least three years. That seems to very dramatically affect the photosynthesising plants, um, both in the ocean and in, in the marine world. So we had something like 90% of the plankton, the photosynthetic plankton, at the top of the oceans uh, going extinct. So that had effect on everything. So everything that feeds off that um, would have been affected by, by the loss of these primary producers. And is that sort of what led to the extinction of the dinosaurs? We think so. This was the most dramatic effect that could have been global, that's correct. Closer to the impact site, you can see that um, there would have been more wildfires and uh, there would have been a large pulse of radiation from the expanding plume, a little bit like a nuclear explosion. So it's close to the impact site, other things could have caused it, caused the deaths. Gosh, that doesn't sound like a pleasant environment to be in. How sure are we that this is what wiped out the dinosaurs? Because some have argued that volcanoes also played a large role. That's true. Um, we can see the extinction of the small things, um, like the plankton I was just talking about. That happens exactly coincident with the impact. So you get the impact ejector in a layer all around the globe, and that's when the extinction of those small things occurred. For dinosaurs, it's more difficult because the bones are bigger and there's less fossils. But you have to say that given it caused the catastrophe of the of, you know, the primary producers, it seems very likely that it also caused the death of the dinosaurs. Uh, having said that, there were volcanic eruptions going on for quite a long time and they may have made things sort of more ready for extinction, as in things might have been quite stressed already. So now we know. Joanna Morgan there. She's at Imperial College in London and that study was published in Geophysical Research Letters. And on the subject of things incoming from space... What happens when the science and technology of space comes down to Earth? Welcome to Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists, the mini-series that explores spin-offs from space technology that are being used on Earth. I'm Dr Stuart Higgins. This episode, how developing an automatic biology lab for the International Space Station led to a machine that can speed up testing for infectious diseases back on Earth. Biolab is a semi-automatic biology testing laboratory in the Columbus model of the International Space Station. Launched on board the Space Shuttle Atlantis in 2008, the lab allows both astronauts and scientists back on Earth to understand how weightlessness affects living organisms. Once set going, the experiments are largely automated, freeing up the astronauts to do other things. One of these tasks includes carefully measuring out liquid nutrients for samples. And it turns out that the expertise used to develop the machine for doing this has found other uses back down on Earth. 
a Belgian biomedical company was looking to help develop a machine that could automatically run tests for infectious diseases such as HIV and syphilis. The types of tests they use are called immunoassays. The test detects disease molecules known as antigens, which are found in the blood when somebody has an infection. While the tests can work in lots of different ways, a common approach is to take a thin strip of special paper and selectively coat it with antibodies. These are molecules produced by the body as it responds to an infection and can attach strongly to the disease antigens. A sample from a patient can then be washed over the paper strip. Any disease antigens present in the sample will stick to the antibodies on the surface of the paper. A second, different antibody is then washed over the strip again, which sticks to the other side of the antigen, forming a kind of sandwich. Attached to this second antibody is an enzyme. The strip is finally washed in another chemical, which is broken down by this enzyme, producing a coloured dye, which is then visible to the human eye. The end result is a paper strip with lines that change colour, depending on whether the disease is present or not. It's a similar principle to how pregnancy tests work. However, the process of running the test can be pretty laborious. It relies upon washing precise quantities of different liquids at different times over the strips. The Belgian biomedical company was trying to work out how to build a machine that could run these tests automatically, a few at a time. It ended up working with the engineers responsible for developing part of the automated tests on the space station's biolab, who used the same tech and know-how to produce an automatic testing machine, freeing up lab scientists to get more done. So that's how experiments designed to test the impact of microgravity on organisms in space led to automated testing for infectious diseases back on Earth. That was Down to Earth from The Naked Scientists. My name is Dr Stuart Higgins, and you can find more episodes online at nakedscientists.com slash downtoearth. Thank you, Stuart. And next time on Down to Earth, where cloud computing came from. Hello, Katie here with a quick request. The Naked Scientist survey is still open, and we really want to hear your views. It's online at thenakedscientist.com slash survey. It only takes a few minutes, and if you fill it in, you could win some Amazon vouchers. We read every word, so this is your chance to let us know what you think about the programme, or what you'd like to hear more of. That address again is www.thenakedscientist.com survey. Thank you very much. Now, on with the show. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Georgia Mills. Still to come, how a man with electrodes in his head has helped scientists to uncover how the brain recognises faces and the people who are using smart drugs to boost their performance at work. But are there consequences? First, though, in many Western countries, suicide is the leading cause of death in young men. One of the reasons for this is that spotting who's really at risk so doctors can prioritise helping them is extremely difficult. But now, a team in the US have discovered a telltale signature of suicide risk written into an individual's brain activity, which they uncovered using machine learning. The technique could offer a way not only to find out who's most at risk, but also to tailor therapies to reduce thoughts of suicide in the first place. Marcel just told me what he's found. It has to do with acquiring fMRI images of brain activity during a thought process. We ask people to think about some thought. You know, we, we could ask them to think about a hammer or a chair or whatever. But in this study, we asked them to think about concepts related to death, positive concepts in life, and, and some negative aspects of life. This allowed us to acquire the brain activation patterns associated with each of these concepts. And our machine learning techniques allowed us 
to determine the physical manifestation of an individual thought. So we thought this approach might be useful in identifying people who are suicidal ideators. Okay, so you put people in a, in a brain scanner, this fMRI, you get them to think about certain topics, and then their brains light up in certain ways depending on what they're thinking about, and your machine learning is able to go through all the various different brains and find consistent patterns. Correct. Patterns, but not arbitrary patterns, patterns corresponding to very specific thoughts. And we see very specific alterations in the thought patterns, the neural signatures of the people who are suicidal ideators. So you had people in your study who were people who had contemplated suicide and other people who hadn't, is that right? That's correct. We had a group of 17 people who were suicidal ideators and 17 who were neurotypical people who were matched in age and other demographics. At, at the first level, we just let a computer program find any difference it could latch onto, and it could accurately distinguish the two groups. But at a second level, we asked, can we specify what some of the differences are? And there, we asked whether the emotional component of the neural signature differs between groups. And it did. Now, let me explain how this magic of discerning of the emotional signature came about. We had previously done a study where people are asked to evoke in themselves various emotions. And so we had this repository, this archive of emotion signatures. And then in the current study of the people with suicidal ideation, we had their neural representations of various concepts such as death and carefree and funeral and so on. We could ask, how much of the neural signature of something like sadness there was in each one, how much there was of shame, the neural representation of death in the people who are suicidal ideators uh, has a larger component of sadness and of shame. And so what would you say is the, is the significance of a finding like this? A lot of the, the significance is promissory, potential for the future. Imagine if we could use this to predict who's going to make a suicide attempt. We could save lives with this if it works. It also has the potential for application to other psychiatric disorders. You know, many psychiatric disorders consist of an alteration of some kind of thinking. Maybe we can detect it and provide a complementary measure to conventional psychiatric diagnosis. If you are able to see then a difference in the brains of people who are contemplating suicide. Could this give us any any ideas of how to treat um, suicidal thoughts? Yes. And let me just say, we're not just seeing differences in the brains. We're seeing differences in the thought representations in the brains. So and I think that's different. And it gives you an additional additional traction on potential therapy. If you just know that some area activates too much or too little, well, Maybe you can do something to change that. But if you know that the thought is altered in a particular way, if you know that death evokes an unusual amount of sadness, you could possibly direct your therapy at changing, or eliminating, reducing that specific alteration. 
I think this gives potentially an extremely useful avenue to therapy. Be very interesting to see where that work goes. That was Marcel Just. He's based at Carnegie Mellon University, and the work he was talking about was published in Nature Human Behaviour. Now, staying with the brain, more than a third of it in a human is devoted just to decoding what we see. And although brain scans can show us the parts of the brain that are switching on when we look at certain things, what they can't tell us is what tasks those active areas are actually carrying out. But, very rarely, an opportunity arises for scientists to literally get inside the human mind. And this happened recently to neuroscientist Nancy Canwisher. So I've been studying a region on the bottom of the back of the right hemisphere for about 20 years. It's called the fusiform face area. It's a little region that's about uh, the size of a uh, penny, and it responds quite strongly when you look at faces. And so we've known that for quite a while. The question is, what does it do with faces? And does it also play a little bit of a role in the perception of other things that aren't faces? And so what I wanted to know is, When that region of the brain is stimulated and a person is looking at something that isn't a face, does it affect their perception of that other thing? We can't uh, do things to people's brains. That's not ethical. So what we have to do when we study humans is wait for clinical opportunities where a neurosurgeon is going to do something for clinical reasons. This patient had intractable epilepsy, and you can't live a normal life that way. So in these situations, what neurosurgeons do is first map out the brain, find the focus of the epilepsy seizures, and take it out surgically. And so the the neurosurgeons placed tiny electrodes all over the surface of his brain, including a lot of electrodes right in an area that I happened to be interested in. It was an opportunity to find out what happens when the patient looks at different things and when those electrodes are stimulated electrically. Right, so you're both eavesdropping on what's going on in those areas natively. And you can also then reverse the equation and put electricity and therefore stimulus into those areas and ask, well, if I change the activity in that area, what does it do to the patient's experience? Exactly. So we gave the neurosurgeons a bunch of pictures of faces and words and objects and different kinds of things, both in color and in grayscale. And we said, please show these images to the patient, and we think we'll be able to find out what exactly each electrode responds to. And sure enough, there were 10 electrodes right next to each other that responded nearly exclusively to faces. And what happened when you then stimulated those areas? So you know I'm recording from this particular area underneath at the back of the brain and I'm seeing it becoming very excitable when this person looks at faces. But when you then put energy into that area, what does the patient see? What the patient saw was he saw a face on top of whatever he was looking at. So when he was looking at a box, he saw a face on top of the box. When he was looking at this orange soccer ball, he saw a face on top of the soccer ball, and he reported that the face looked like an anime character. It wasn't a person uh, familiar to him. Now, that may be because when you electrically stimulate the brain, you are essentially activating tens of thousands of neurons in that region. And it may be that when you do that, what that codes for is a very general presence of a face, not a particular face, which might require activating a subset of those neurons. What is your interpretation, the fact that you see the face on top of the object you were looking at and the object itself is not changed in your perception when you do this? My interpretation is that region is only involved in face perception, not even a little bit in the perception of objects. 
And so this is the strongest possible evidence that the kinds of minds we have are these very specialized minds that have special purpose machinery for solving very particular problems. And when the visual system is is looking at things, can one sort of summarize by saying, well, if you look at something and there is a face somewhere in it, then the right bit of the brain extracts the, the face shape, tells your consciousness, ah, oh, that must be a face, by activating this area you've been looking at. So it's like a trip switch. When your area you're interested in goes active, that says to the brain, yep, that's a face. Exactly. Does your finding suggest then that if you had done the opposite of stimulating that area and you deactivated it, that this person wouldn't be able to recognise a face for what it was? They would just see a shape like they would see any other shape. Exactly. I think what would happen is the patient would probably know that the face was a face, but probably would not know which face it was. And actually, we didn't have time for the neurosurgeons to test that in this patient, but my guess is that when the patient was looking at a face, if we had asked him which person is that while stimulating that region, he would probably be disrupted with that function. He would probably know it was a face but not know which face, either if you deactivated the region or if you stimulated a lot of neurons in that region. Both of those things are kinds of disruption that interfere with processing in that region. And as Groucho Marx famously said, I never forget a face, but in your case, I'll make an exception. One face, of course, we don't want to forget is Nancy Camwisher, who is there describing the work she's just published in the journal PNAS. She's at MIT in Boston. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with George Mills. You can find more episodes of the programme back catalogue on our website. That's nakedscientist.com. Now for the main topic of the programme. Some of us love it, some of us hate it, but like it or not, the average person is destined to spend a third of their waking life at work. That's right. And in the next half an hour or so, we're looking at how the workplace affects your health and productivity, how humour is an essential ingredient but could cost you your job if you get it wrong, and are we driving workers too hard? There's a worrying trend that people are resorting to brain-boosting smart drugs, including one called modafinil, to help them to concentrate harder and get the job done. I took modafinil when I was writing up my PhD. It helped me concentrate and basically put me in the zone when my mind was full of other distractions, like worrying if I was ever going to finish my thesis. I did worry about becoming dependent on it, though. So I only took 100 to 200 milligrams per day and no more than four or five days in a row. I also learned never to take it after lunch. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to sleep properly that night. I found that if I followed these rules, I'd get a good day's work done, then be absolutely exhausted, eat and go to bed and repeat the next day. It's an interesting perspective, isn't it? And we'll hear more about smart drugs like modafinil and how widespread their use is later in the programme. But first, let's look at how our behaviour and our mindset can influence what we achieve at work. The evidence is that humour can be a powerful motivator, and so can trash-talking, which is where people purposefully challenge or make disparaging remarks about performance, which can actually help productivity. But both can also backfire. Michael Wheeler spoke with Maurice Schweitzer, who studies these approaches. And please note this item does refer to a real-life example of an unacceptable use of humour, which some listeners might find offensive. Well, some people are doing things just right, and others are getting it flat wrong. I'll give you one example from my research investigating humour. People view us as more confident, warmer, more likeable, and more competent when we engage with humour 
and they're more likely to be selected as a leader. Dick Costolo was the CEO of Twitter, and he was a stand-up comic earlier in his career, and he credits his use of humor for helping him rise to power. But there are other people who have had a disastrous outcome. I can give you one example of that, where there was a PR representative who became infamous for her tweets. She was flying from New York to visit family in South Africa. Her first tweet on this trip read, weird German dude, you're in first class. It's 2014. Get some deodorant. Inner monologue as I inhale BO. Thank God for pharmaceuticals. She lands in London and then tweets, chili, cucumber sandwiches, bad teeth, back in London. And then her next tweet that crosses the line reads, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. By the time she landed in South Africa, there were protests, and her family was saying that we don't abide by this sort of behavior. They had already been contacted by the media, and she ends up losing her job. Is there anything that we can learn from experiments about how to try and employ humor, you know, in a professional setting? Yes. So from my research, what I found is that people are often afraid of telling jokes that fall flat. But it turns out that's not so costly. If you're really on the fence, you could tell something really quite edgy or not very edgy. Go with the one that's not so edgy and you might get a chuckle. And if you don't, it's actually not that big a deal. What would be some other examples of things that you have tried to understand by conducting experiments? Well, I have some recent research investigating trash-talking, competitive and incivil communication. We brought in 178 undergraduate students, and they would sit at computer terminals and just text back and forth with a partner. Then we describe the effort-based task. We tell them, you're going to compete, And you're going to have to do things like count the number of letters in a sentence. And whoever counts more letters accurately is going to win a dollar. We then had a confederate that took it over and said, hey, looks like we'll be competing against each other in the next task. So whoever wins gets the bonus money. That's the neutral confederate. In the trash-talking condition, we start off the same way. Hey, it looks like we'll be competing against each other in the next task. But then it transitions to... Just so you know, I'm taking that bonus money. You're definitely going to lose. And then I'm smarter than you. I'm faster than you. I'm going to beat you like a rented mule. The participants who receive that trash-talking message end up performing much better. A lot of effort-based tasks, you see performance go way up. Yeah, I I can imagine it. it, You know, it's the type of thing that wouldn't suit everyone, though. might work for some people, um, but not for others. Have you gained any insights into anything that might be a little bit more generalizable? I have a latest stream of work uh, looking at anxiety in the workplace. Anxiety is negative, where we're focused on what happens if things go badly. One of the things that we've found is that you can change how you feel by saying, I'm excited. Excitement is also a high activation, high arousal emotion but it's focused on the ways in which things could go well. We had people say, I am excited, before they would sing, and we had a wee karaoke machine that scored singing. We had them deliver 
a short presentation. We had them take math tests across different experiments. And we found that when people convinced themselves that they were excited in these high-pressure moments, they actually performed demonstrably better. I've always been given the advice to, you know, if I'm doing something like a presentation or something that could provoke anxiety, to calm down. Is that good advice to give people? Yeah, that's a great question. So that advice is not nearly as good as get excited, think about how great things would be if that presentation goes really well. The heart rate will stay high, but if we focus on those opportunities, we'll engage better and we'll basically harness that energy in a way that's going to give us a high energy, constructive, effective presentation where calming down doesn't seem to work at all. So what do you think, Chris? Will some trash talking help me improve my presenting skills? I thought you were going to say something like throw down the gauntlet and say, I'm going to say I'm a better interviewer than you and that will make my, me up my game or something. I wouldn't dare. <laughs> I wouldn't dare do that. That was Maurice Schweitzer from Wharton University. Now, there are many lengths that people go to in order to improve their performance in the workplace. And increasingly, there are amongst them reports of smart drugs being taken at work. But what are these smart drugs and who's using them? With us is Barbara Sahakian. She's from the University of Cambridge, where she's had a long-term track record of studying how these things work and what they do. So, Barbara, what actually is the definition of smart drugs? Well, they're cognitive enhancing drugs, so they improve your, you know, focusing of your attention and concentration or maybe your memory or maybe your planning, problem solving, all the different forms of cognitive function that we have. In America, people frequently use Adderall, amphetamine salts. In the UK and Europe, it tends to be more methylphenidate, which is Ritalin or modafinil. We actually put a call out for people's experiences with smart drugs and were surprised by the number of responses we got. This one came to us from someone who works in a tech startup in London, and this is what she wrote to us. My current regime is that I will take half a tablet of modafinil at around 8am once every two or three weeks as needed. And then I will go through phases of taking 12 micrograms of LSD every three days. For me, modafinil lowers my activation threshold, which means all those jobs I've been putting off because of doubt or anxiety become much easier. The night before a planned modafinil day, I will write a to-do list of these kind of tasks, along with any menial work I just need to plough through. It will start to work after about 20 minutes, and I will feel an active focus and interest in what I am doing, without the slightest desire to procrastinate. I find myself irritated by needing to go to the bathroom and break my flow. Sometimes I might accidentally get sent down the wrong path and find myself spending an hour tidying my desktop and document files, which is why the to-do list is so important to keep on track. By early afternoon, I'll noticeably begin to run out of steam and develop a minor headache at the front of my skull. Focus will fade, and by around 3pm I'll find it difficult to work. It makes the day shorter and more intense, often achieving a huge bundle of things that have been mounting up in a pile of procrastination. However, you definitely feel like you've been on a drug, like a supercharged coffee followed by a daytime hangover. That feeling of, I've been on a substance and made a trade-off for the instant problem fix, means that modafinil isn't something I do often or view in a particularly positive light. Microdosing LSD is different. I'll feel a general sense of positivity towards my colleagues and begin to see problems from their perspective, even when we've disagreed in the past. I'll be focused on my work and, again, feel less anxiety about difficult issues, but without that adrenalised focus of modafinil. Barbara, am I alone in feeling mildly alarmed by hearing that? 
Well, it is surprising um, that so many people are using these drugs, but actually the two reports accord quite well. I mean, in our studies where we've looked at cognitive enhancing effects, we found that the 200 milligram dose is most successful, and that's what one of the people commented on using. And they also commented on using it to get into the flow, to actually get focused, and also with tasks often that they're trying to avoid or they don't find very enjoyable or they've been putting off. And we've shown in our studies, that are double-blind, placebo-controlled, that when we ask people to rate, say, how interesting they found doing a test, that under placebo, the test is okay, but under modafinil, they rate it as really pleasurable or enjoyable. So somehow it makes these tasks seem uh, a lot easier to get through that you've been putting off for some reason. You've been doing these studies for a long time where you put people in brain scanners and put them on these chemicals and then see what changes in their brains when they're on the chemical and doing a task compared with when they're not. So what does happen when you take a a drug like Ritalin or modafinil? So for Ritalin, what we found was that um, it actually, if they're doing, say, a working memory task, which is the type of thing we use all the time for what we call higher cognitive function, so planning, problem solving, all of that will have a component, which is what we call working memory, where you you sort of got some things in your space, your memory space, and then you, you get rid of them when you don't need them anymore. And what we found was that not only on Ritalin in healthy people do they have a better performance than those people on placebo, but also their brain doesn't need to act as strongly. So there's uh, more efficacy in the brain activation, but they have a better performance. So it seems that your brain doesn't have to work as hard, but you have a better performance. I did a study with uh, Lord Aradazi at Imperial College because he was concerned about his surgeons taking uh, too much coffee, caffeine at night to stay awake and alert. And of course, then you could get hand tremor, which is a common side effect of taking uh, caffeine. And so he wanted to know whether the surgeons would do better under modafinil. So we actually sleep-deprived doctors, and then we gave them modafinil placebo in a double-blind placebo-controlled study. And we find that the doctors on modafinil who were sleep-deprived actually had better cognitive function in terms of their ability to be cognitive flexible when solving problems, so they could switch between problem-solving very quickly. And we also found that they were less impulsive, so it seems to have these benefits as well. But it is worrying, as you say, because we don't know the long-term consequences of using these drugs. So there are no long-term safety and efficacy studies in healthy people with with these drugs. And also a lot of people are buying it over the internet and you don't really know what you're getting. And I know you said that we don't actually know what the long-term effects are yet, but could one envisage a situation where if you take these chemicals and they enable you to burn the candle at both ends, we know that robbing yourself of good restful sleep is a risk factor for, say, Alzheimer's disease. Do you think that we might encourage people to put themselves at increased risk of things like Alzheimer's because they adopt a higher-risk lifestyle? Well, that's that's a very interesting point that you make. And I often worry about students who are taking these drugs and they're usually cramming for exams because they haven't done the work consistently. And what they do is sometimes with Ritalin, they might take a tablet and then as it's wearing off, take another tablet. And then, of course, they don't sleep at night. And we consolidate our memories in our sleep. And also we need that, obviously, for rest as well. So it's counterproductive, really, because you're not consolidating what you were trying to learn during the day. So I think, you know, we do need to put this in perspective. And I often say, you know, will people 
in the future use these drugs to have a better work-life balance and to get their work done and then and then enjoy themselves to go out and exercise and things like that? Or will they just work longer because they can work longer, so they just get into a 24-7 cycle? Is it habit-forming? Because the, the initial contributor we heard from said, I did it a certain way because I didn't want to become dependent. Are all these drugs habit-forming? Yeah, so, so far uh, for modafinil, nobody's demonstrated any abuse potential. But we do know that the classic stimulants like the amphetamines and the methylphenidate do have potential for abuse, and uh, so there could be a, a physical aspect to it. But with modafinil, it, it might be that you become psychologically wanting to use it all the time because it worked for you on one occasion, so now you want to try it on another, but it doesn't seem to have abuse potential. You've surveyed this. How many people in your surveys in circles like Silicon Valley and academics are using these agents? Well, we don't really know about the Silicon Valley, but what we do know is that the surveys they've done in the United States, they often find uh, someplace between 13 and 20 percent of students using them at, at colleges. And uh, there was a varsity uh, survey uh, in Cambridge some time ago, and they found about 10 percent of students. And in Germany, they've done surveys, and they found about seven, and these are insurance surveys, so they're looking at people in the workplace, and they found about 7% of people in the workplace were using these drugs to um, because they felt that they couldn't do their jobs otherwise. It's a worry, isn't it? Thank you very much, Barbara Zahakin from the University of Cambridge, coming in to tell us all about it. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Georgia Mills and with Chris Smith. This week, we're looking at the factors that keep us happy and healthy in the workplace. Now, as we've just been hearing, people in some industries are taking drugs to maximise their productivity at work, and this could impact their health. But what else about the workplace needs to be considered, and how will the world of work change in the future? Georgia spoke to Alan Hedge. He's the Professor of Ergonomics at Cornell University. Ergonomics literally means the science of work. Most organisations don't optimise the workplace. Often equipment is not designed to give you the best performance and often people don't work in the most efficient way. Okay, so could you give me an example of um, how potentially your environment or your equipment might negatively affect a worker? We're looking at the physical environment. We know that uh, poor temperatures can actually lead to reductions in work performance. Then we know that poor spatial layouts can impact communication patterns between people and that can reduce productivity. Uh, we also know that sitting people down all day long is now not a great idea and neither is standing people up all day long. So why is sitting down such a problem? Uh, sitting for too long undoubtedly is a problem. <laughs> we know that in terms of what happens to your circulatory system. We know that in terms of what happens to the way that you process the calories that you eat or drink. Uh, we know that in terms of what happens to muscles and muscle strength. Your body is really designed to move. But likewise, standing up is equally problematic. We know that standing for too long increases risks of varicose veins, increases risks of carotid artery disease. So the key is don't sit all day, don't stand all day, mix it up. And what other ways are there we can think about the design of a workplace that can improve the health of uh, or the productivity of a worker? 
when you think about designing a sort of optimal workplace, what you have to think about first of all is what are people doing? Then secondly, what equipment are they using? Now, these days, a lot of people can do work on portable devices. So if that's the case, those individuals don't necessarily need to have a dedicated desk. You can actually work in a much smaller footprint. What that means is that people go to work and it's like checking into a hotel. Um, and so the, the trend that we are seeing in workplaces, at least here in the States, is to take that individual space and to take a chunk of that and create what we call a shared space that allows you to put different kinds of experiences into the building. So we're seeing more use of things like relaxation rooms in buildings where you can just go for, you know, five or ten minutes just to de-stress a little bit before going back to the job that you're doing. And what you end up with at the end of the day are significant improvements in the health of individuals. And you also have significantly more movement. Now, what about temperature? Obviously, here in the UK, it's starting to get uh, pretty cold. So how can that affect performance and what can we do about it? We have done a lot of work looking at temperature in relation to how much work people do. And what we found is that often buildings are too cold for an optimal level of work for individuals. Um, and ironically, here in the US, that's related to air conditioning in summertime. So we find that the optimal temperatures usually are in the range of 25 to 26 Celsius, which is often four to six degrees higher than people set their thermostats to. Is it true as well that different people are comfortable at different temperatures? It is true that different people are comfortable at different temperatures because the muscles generate um, a significant amount of body heat. And men, on average, have about 30% more muscle mass than women, so men typically are going to generate more heat. And there's also some evidence that it relates to the distribution of body fat. So, yes, you do see these functional differences. Mm, so if everyone's sort of running at different temperatures, how, how could we solve this with design or something like that? One way is to create environments in which individual workspaces have their own temperature control. And indeed, at the moment, we're testing uh, a small portable air conditioning unit that will actually provide about four to six degrees of cooling. So the, the advantage of looking at some kind of personal air conditioning uh, system is that you can locally um, heat or cool the air and filter the air where the person's actually breathing the air. What we are working on at the moment are systems that use um, relatively little energy to actually uh, achieve all of these things, you know, little more than the energy of just running a fan. Whereas large cooling systems in buildings use a, a huge amount of energy. In, in the US, a third of all of our energy is, is expended just by cooling buildings. Could you paint me a picture of the office of the future? Technology is going to uh, become part of every object that's in the office. We're going to have what we call intelligent walls or intelligent surfaces. There are a lot of projection technologies that let you actually interact with the, uh, with the computer system um, simply by making movements. We're definitely going to see more variety in the workspace. We're going to see more flexible work schedules, more personal monitoring, more wearable technology. If you just look at the growth in things like, you know, 
Apple Watch or the Fitbits or the Polar Monitors or whatever it is, your activity trackers giving you information about your health status. We're definitely going to see more impact of wearables in the future. And and the, the bottom line here is to try and extend the working life of individuals and also maintain their health. Oh, good. So I'll be able to keep working until I'm 95. <laughs> That's very good for you. It's healthy for you. In fact, you know, nothing will speed up your atrophy like stopping working. And work doesn't have to necessarily be physically incredibly difficult. But if you look at many highly productive individuals, they are still working mentally at least into their 80s and 90s. So there you go, George. And there's no early retirement for you anytime soon. Yeah, good to know. I'll get about two weeks <laughs> off the job before I die of old age. <laughs> that was Alan Hedge, Professor of Ergonomics at Cornell University. Now, we've looked at the ways that our health is impacted by our physical and our social environment and in the workplace. But what if it's simply the time we spend at work that has the biggest impact? With us is Courtney Landers. She's a mental health researcher. She's interested in the impact of work on our mental health. Um, so, Courtney, how does the amount of time we spend at our desk in the office affect our mental well-being? More than you'd think. It was really interesting you mentioned gut bacteria before because there's lots of studies coming out now that indicate that the chemicals that your gut bacteria produce can really affect your mental health. And what people don't consider, I think, is that things like stress, diet, exercise, all of these things are known to affect your gut bacteria. And so, of course, if you're working too hard, if you're not looking after yourself, your gut bacteria will be affected and thus perhaps your mental health will be affected. Um, the other thing that's changed in the workplace in the last 50 years is a dramatic reduction in the numbers of jobs which are physical. Yeah. The number of people doing a, a physical job has dropped from something like 50% down to about 5%. The number of people doing a sedentary role has gone from about 5% to 50%. Um, do you think that also is playing a role? Because people are less active and an activity also improves well-being. Do you think that could be part of the reason why people might be unhealthy? Absolutely. I think it's a combination. You've sort of seen the rise of people working longer hours in the interest of efficiency, perhaps, or productivity, trying to get more done. And because lots of jobs are desk-based these days, that means that people are spending more time at their desk. Whereas I think before, perhaps, people would work nine to five and then go home, play with their families, go out, do other things. And I think it's probably that factor, not so much what you're doing at work, but how long you spend at work and what you do afterwards. And is there evidence that the problem is getting worse? Because we are working longer hours on average now than we did historically, and that's largely driven digitally, isn't it? Because, you know, historically your inbox filled up at the rate the postman could pedal his bicycle. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays your inbox fills up at the rate that a computer can feed you more to do, and so yeah. you, could, you could get this sense of an overwhelming workload that yeah. never ends. No, it was. Uh, I think there was a 2014 study in Australia just recently, uh, and they were looking at work-life balance. And historically, Australia's got one of the best work-life balances. So I certainly, it certainly agreed with me when I lived in Sydney. It was, yeah. it was fantastic. But uh, over the last five years of this study, they found that 45% of people's work-life balance had got worse rather than better. So for some reason, even though it's this nirvana, you know, lovely sunshine country people, for some reason, were just working more and enjoying themselves less. What about this idea that, because um, there's this saying, if you do a job you love, you'll never do a day's work in your yeah. life. Does that hold? So if you take people who really love their job and they are workaholics because they are really into it, yeah. do they still suffer the same ill effect of long hours as people who, who don't have that control? I think it's... Uh... 
I think it's a dangerous way to think because it doesn't really matter how much you love what you're doing. You still need to sleep. You still need to eat. After a certain number of hours doing these things that you love, eventually everybody needs to take a break. So unless you're looking after the sort of physical machinery of your body, eventually the mental machinery will break <laughs> down no matter how much you're enjoying it in the first place. So what appears to be the duration of work which is most consistent with good health? Uh and this is the interesting thing is that, you know, in the age of automation and the iPhone, we really haven't looked at how much this is affecting us. There was a study, I think, by the University of Melbourne last year that looked at over 40s, I think. And they established that after about working 30 or so hours a week, which is six hours a day over a five-day week, uh, people's productivity vastly reduced. So essentially people were already working too hard uh, above the age of 40. And of course, most people start to, um, to work at a very early age these days, but there's no data for the younger generation at all. So something we probably should look into, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Courtney, thank you very much. Courtney Landers there. Well, we're all clearly working very hard and we've been working very hard making this programme, so let's look at how to unwind. Mindfulness has been one popular method of doing this, and if you haven't tried it yet, Listen up, because we asked yoga instructor Sanjay James from Cam Yoga in Cambridge to make us more mindful. Bring your attention to the physical sensation of breathing. The air moving through your nose. The rising and falling of your belly. Notice when your mind wanders from your breath. When you notice your mind wandering, gently return your attention to the breath. Just keep repeating to yourself and breathing in and breathing in and breathing in. And then hold your breath for a little moment and repeat in your mind, I'm holding my breath, I'm holding my breath, I'm holding my breath. And then very slowly breathe out through your nose and repeat in your mind, I'm breathing out, I'm breathing out, I'm breathing out. And just stay in this rhythm. Instead of wrestling with your thoughts, practice observing them without reacting to them. Just sit and pay attention. Sanjay James from Cam Yoga there. And mindfulness is a bit of a buzzword at the moment. So Barbara, I was wondering, does it actually work? Is there any science behind this? Is it a good idea to sort of unwind? Yes, so there is evidence base behind it. So there is studies showing that it does help. And I think it's particularly good. I mean, there are other techniques, exercise, yoga, things that you can use. But some people find it difficult to clear their minds and actually be in the moment. And mindfulness helps you do that. I mean, you heard from that little clip that, you know, basically you have to focus in on your breathing. And when your mind wanders away, come back to that again. So it keeps you from thinking about all these other things that distract us during the day and, and, and make it difficult to relax and actually unwind and, and really have that beneficial effect of well-being. So is this being in the moment idea, is that beneficial for our actual mental health? It is a good idea to be in the moment because many people miss out on things and they don't realize they're missing out on things because they're not actually focusing on what's going around on at the moment with them. And you've probably been at restaurants where you see everybody looking at their phones instead of talking to each other and really enjoying the dinner and talking to their friends. So everybody's checking their phones. So you lose out on the enjoyment and the, and the well-being that you can get from that experience. Thank you very much, Barbara. That's Barbara Sahakian. And thank you to our other guests this week, Courtney Landers, Alan Hedge and Maurice Schweitzer. 
And to finish, time now for our question of the week in which Izzy Clark has been sparking some debate with this inquiry from Elizabeth. Hello, Naked Scientists. Greetings from South Africa. I was driving on the highway while it was raining and thundering overhead. I remember that someone said a car is a safe place to be in a thunderstorm as it acts as a Faraday cage and the lightning will go around it. Is this true? Or would the engine shut down, which could cause a huge accident? We put this to the Naked Scientist Forum. Alan said that the biggest risk would be reduced visibility in a storm and the likelihood of an uncontrolled skid. And Evan thought that it was all down to the design of the car's electronics. So to get to the bottom of this electrifying question, we asked Philip Garsid from the University of Cambridge to strike up an answer. A lightning strike lasts a hundred millionths of a second. Tens of thousands of amps heat the air to 50,000 degrees and make it explode. Your questioner is right to wonder where the safest place to be in a lightning storm is. The car is a pretty good bet, but you probably don't really want to be struck whilst you're driving one. A car conducts electricity far, far better than the surrounding air. And when lightning strikes a metal car with a metal roof, the enormous current flows easily through the body of the vehicle, and so it goes around the occupants rather than through them. It's kind of like the electrical equivalent of building a bypass. Traffic goes around a town rather than through the middle of it. This is what's known as a Faraday cage, and you'll be safe as long as you remain completely inside the vehicle and not disrupt the current flow. So whilst it's good news for you, the lightning strike won't be good news for your car. Although the worst of a lightning strike will go through the chassis, modern cars use lots of sensitive electronics. In the best case, that sudden burst of interference from the lightning would cause a lot of them to develop faults. But more likely, those circuits will see currents they were never designed for and be permanently damaged. Ah, that doesn't sound good. And according to Philip, there are a few other threats if you're on the road at the time. The biggest problem is likely to be how you respond. Because we know that you'll probably be unharmed by the actual strike. But the problem is everything else that might happen. The thunder will make you jump, the lightning will dazzle you, you'll lose your lights, trigger the airbags, or perhaps even have a nice little electrical fire on your dashboard. And also probably some of your tyres have exploded. Of course, it's pretty unlikely that your car will get struck by lightning in a thunderstorm, unless you're in a very exposed place. But perhaps leave a bit of space behind the car in front, just in case. Thanks, Philip, for clearing that up. And next week, we're picking at this question from Patrick. Why, oh, why am I unable to stop picking my nose? What is it that makes it so satisfying and addictive? Is there an evolutionary reason behind it? Also, why do some other people eat what comes out? Charming. If you can dig up an answer to Patrick's question, email it to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientist or type your thoughts into our forum. After washing your hands, of course. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much to Michael Wheeler for putting the programme together. And do join us next time for a Q&A show. You send in the science questions and we'll try and answer them. If you have a question you'd like us to solve for you, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com on email. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and until next time, goodbye.